Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. Have we gotten to this point where people wake up every morning looking for something to be offended about? I live in this place called the real world, and I understand what is going to happen. Her story is, I was trying to scare him away. At the same time, she shot him point blank in the face. Okay, that's not exactly a warning shot. The Accurate Mortgage Talk and Text Line is open now. Give Jeff a call at 855-616-1620. Coming up next, Squirrel. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. So, Melissa Barkley, with the possible exception of President Trump, do you know who or what group of people is most irate about the impeachment hearings that kicked off a couple days ago? Hmm. That's a thinker. Most irate. Most irate. I'll, I'll actually. I'll, I'll give you a hint. Some yeah. of those people are close to home. I oh well. Okay, I got it. Yeah. The people that are watching soap operas. Well, at, at, you're 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 close, close? to that. <laughs> it, it's actually it, it's you know we, we no longer share a corporate identity with our friends mm-hmm. at t- today's TMJ four WTMJ, but I, and I, I have not spoken directly to directly to any of management, but. The people that are, are most irate are local television stations, yeah. network affiliates all across the country, because what, what's happening is they have preempted, they've blown out all their, their shows. We, you know, days, if you want to watch Days of Our Lives at one o'clock, you're out of luck because we're, Channel 4 is showing and they're carrying the national feed, uh, the NBC feed mm-hmm. of the impeachment thing. And you know, I've, I've said this before. You always have to feel extremely sorry for the, the folks that work at our switchboard here yeah. because they feel irate <laughs> phone calls from yes, people going, do. where are my stories? Similarly, um, all across the country, there, there's a lot of money that is made. And look, there's, there's nothing wrong with that. We, the way broadcast companies, whether it's television or radio, the way you, there's all sorts of ways you make money. But the primary one is you sell advertising to advertisers. Well, all right, on, on local programming so th- this is all blown out I-, I mean you've got like the the news I was just looking over here what is normally the TMJ4 news is gone that news is at noon yeah right the news at noon is blown out at least on the over-the-air TV I think they might be streaming it but 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 over-the-air TV is blown out the afternoon programming is blown out for this impeachment thing that I I a declining number of people are watching. So You know, it's interesting you say this because, and I know you're talking about advertisers and the loss there, but I talked to my mom this morning. She goes, yeah, I haven't been able to see uh, Young and the Wrestling. Yeah. So I'm like, what? Well, I said, who list- Who watches soap opera? She's like, oh, there's a ton of people. Oh, absolutely. She, so what she does, she goes online to some Canadian website and they have they have it on there right. so oh, no it, no it's <laughs> so a, there is a lot of people oh, there, well, there are a lot of people well and, and it's and there, there's all the the revenue that's that's oh, generated yeah. stuff and see now the 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 i say problem that the that the networks have is is once you're in you're in i mean mm-hmm. you know okay so you've got three days of the democrats presenting why president trump should be impeached if you once you make the decision you're going to carry that you're you're committed you've got to carry the republican response so that's now like 5 or 6 days that you're completely blowing out your programming and then then you've got whatever else happens so i mean this is a uh, i understand it's 
momentous news event, but it is interesting that they've made the decision that they're going to do it on the over-the-air networks as opposed to, you know, cable, which uh, most people mm-hmm. have, the CNNs and the MSNBCs That's and the Fox point. News. But no, it's, I, I was just looking at it. It's going to be day after day after day. So that's one of the, the, the sort of hidden things that are out there is you've got news directors and you've got sales directors at TV stations all across the country going, oh, my God, we're blowing out day mm-hmm. after day after day of mm-hmm. revenue for this. And I understand people, some people would argue, well, this is this historic type of thing. And, yeah, but it, it's also available elsewhere. And, and I saw that the first numbers, they said across all markets, all platforms, 11 million people the first day, which was down by several million from the numbers that watched the House impeachment proceedings. And the House impeachment proceedings, of course, had witnesses. I... I Unless you are a hardcore political junkie, it's tough to watch this. It's just, you know, a guy giving a speech. It's a lot it's of rhetoric. There's a lot of, right. um, you know, I think repetition. Right. Oh, yeah. As well. And yeah. I mean, it's it's just it's just tough to watch. There, there's no question about it. And my guess is that especially as time goes on, you know, maybe for the ultimate vote, people will tune in, even though that's kind of a preordained thing. But, um, yeah, it, it's kind of tough. And so if, if, if you're one of these people who turns on the television, you go, oh, my God, I can't believe this is still on there. I, you're, you're not alone. And I think there's a lot of people that work in the TV industry that are going, my God, I can't believe that this thing <laughs> is still on there. Yeah. All right. We move on. Melissa, we'll see you in just a little bit. This is, it's a fascinating story. It's not a political story. Um, but I, my question to you is going to be, what should happen here? It's a story out of Illinois that's actually going to the Illinois Supreme Court. But let me give you the facts. And then I, my, my question is going to be, who's, who should be right in this? All right, under federal law, there is, you are entitled under the Family and Medical Leave Act, you are entitled to eight weeks of unpaid maternity or paternity leave. So if you have a, a baby and you want to leave your job for up to eight weeks, you have every right to do it. You are protected under the law, but they don't have to pay you. Now, a number of companies, businesses have policies where they will pay you for maternity leave. But federal law simply says you can take the time off, but it's unpaid. All right, here's here's the story. Now, follow me on this. In Illinois, the woman is a teacher in Illinois. The deal is this. Um, it, you get sick leave. And in order to use your sick leave, like like at our company, you actually have to be sick. So you, you can't use it as, as vacation. You actually have to be sick. Also, under the policy, sick leave, um, if you are on maternity leave, all right, so if you just had a baby, you can, you can call that sick leave and you can get paid for it. Follow me on that. So you have the baby. You have the baby January 2nd. You've got accumulated sick time. You can say, okay, I want to be out for the next eight weeks because I just had my baby. So here I want to be able to use this and I want to collect for it. Okay, follow me on that. All right, so here's the story. All right, teachers in Illinois, now follow this. They, They don't work a full year. What happens is June 7th, is like the last day of their teaching contract. And then they're off for a couple months in the summer, and then they come back August 15th. So here's the deal. Woman has a baby June 6th. June 6th. And she says, okay, 
I th- this is my triggering event. I've had the baby. I I want to take I, I want to take my maternity leave, and I want to call it sick leave. And the school district says, "Well, okay, fine. Your last day is June seventh. So here, you you get one day of of sick leave to June seventh, and then you know you you have the whole summer to recover." So she says, "Well, wait a second. All right. So I'm gonna I want to take my one day of sick leave, and then." I want to come back in August, except I don't want to come back. I want to take another two months of sick leave in August, and I want to use it for maternity leave. And Illinois says, no, wait, you, you, can't, you, you can't do that because you're not sick anymore. Your maternity leave would have been the two months during the summer. Follow me on this? Would have been the two months on the summer. It's like the analogy would be you can't say, gee, I, I have the flu. Here it is. It, it's January 24th. I've got the flu. So, but I'm going to come in and I'm going to work through the flu, but I'm going to take a sick day March 1st because I want to do something else. And I'm going to say, hey, remember that day I came in when I was sick? Well, I want to use that sick day now in March. Well, Illinois says, hey, you can't do that. Just the fact that you had the baby on June 6th, yeah, you get one day of sick leave, maternity leave, and then you're, you're out of luck. You can't hold this over and then say, hey, I'm going to use this, you know, two, three months down the line. She says, wait a minute. Wait a minute. It shouldn't make any difference. I should be the fact that, yeah, I'm, I'm off of work anyways for two months shouldn't stop me from still being able to use another two months of sick leave later on. In other words, saying I'm going to have four months of maternity leave and you have to pay me for that time. All right. Our number. 855-616-1620. That's the Accurate Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, ultimately, this is going to be decided by the courts on the language of the contract. But I I want to ask you what you think should happen. This woman clearly is kind of getting, in some ways, she's getting the shaft because she has the baby a day before she's going to be off for the whole summer. On the other hand, the school district is saying, no, the, the purpose of this is to give you, you know, two months to recover from having a baby. Well, okay, you, you'll have your two months, and it's just your bad luck that this happens to happen during the summer when you wouldn't be working anyways. But you can't expect us to allow you to come in, treat maternity leave as sick leave months after you've had the baby. All right. That is the Accurate Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Who should be right in this? The school teacher or the school district that says, sorry, it's just kind of bad luck that you happen to have your baby a day before you essentially were going to be off for the summer. 855-616-1620. That's the Accurate Mortgage Talk and Text Line. The teacher or the school district who should win in this one? We discuss in just a moment. If you're on the line, please hold on. This is Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. I'm fascinated by, by this story. Essentially, the question is whether paid sick leave should be available for use four months after somebody gives birth to a child if the teacher 
their spouse or the child doesn't have a, a medical issue that requires the teacher to be absent. She's arguing, hey, hey wait, um, the, the fact that I, if I had done, if I had the baby in January, I would have been entitled to, you know, two months off paid by the district. Why would you punish me simply because I had my baby a day before the summer break and I wasn't scheduled to be at work? I should be able to take it four months later. Hmm. All right. 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Linda in Kenosha. Hi, Linda. You're on WTMJ. Hi. What do you think? So my point is that paternity leave has been allowed to be taken whenever um, the father decides that he wants to take it. So our district actually had to change their policy and allow um, maternity leave to be taken intermittently or at another time. Right. So traditionally... The mother would take leave the day the child was born, and they would take it as sick leave. When their days were done, they would either have to return to work or they would be unpaid. Right. But fathers were allowed to take paternity leave at another time, right. and our district has changed that. I don't know what Illinois' policy is, but if you're going to allow fathers to take leave at any point, then the same should go for the, the mother. Right, and if they don't? Assuming that that they don't do that, um, what about the? See, and, and and of course, under the federal law, you can always t- you can take leave within the first year. You just don't have to be paid. The question here is, right. you know, does the school district have to to pay her? And you're exactly right. Most teachers, a female teacher, gives birth. They're they're going to be off for the next eight weeks, or you know, or you know, right. until their sick leave is up. Should this lady? Right. Let's assume. Let, let's let's put the father question out for a minute. Do you think she should be entitled to take the two months off and then come back and be paid for another two months once the school starts? I think if it's under FMLA and she gets a specific number of days, then I think she should be able to use it within that first year just as if I had a sick parent or a sick child. Okay. So under FMLA, we're allowed to use those days. I would not say it's fair to then continue to pay them for leave but there's a certain amount of days that are allotted right Right. and in that case i do think that this falls under that because you're caring for a family member under the leave act right and that's uh, thanks to calling see and again that's nobody's really arguing with that i don't want to get too far in the weeds here but under federal law yes you can take off up to like eight weeks for for the child for the birth of the child but you don't have to be paid no so nobody's arguing that she didn't have have the right to take time off of course in this particular case um she's the time off was during the summer when she wasn't working anyways. But it's really not a question of would she be entitled to the time. The question is, do they have to pay her and let her use sick leave when she's really not sick? Essentially, should you be able to bank time? And again, the best analogy I can give is the one I, I gave earlier. Gee, I had the flu on you know Thursday, January 24th. Today's the 24th, right? I had the, I had the flu on the 24th. I came in and I worked. And so I want to bank that sick day, so I want to use it when I'm healthy, March 1st. A number of interesting texts here. Jeff, uh, the teacher is under contract until a certain date, probably around June 7th. Therefore, since the contract is ended and their new one doesn't start until August, how can she claim an event over the length of two contracts? Uh, that's, I, I think, an issue as well. Jeff, my wife is a teacher here in Milwaukee. We had our daughter on her last day of school. She's paid year-round, um, so this worked out well. Right. If, if you were if you were paid year round, 
again, it, it wouldn't be an, an issue, I think. However, if she would have given birth during the year, she wouldn't have been paid for the two months while out on leave because yeah, she'd have to use her sick leave. Um, Jeff, now teachers are complaining that they have to take the summer off. Uh, looks like the chickens have come home to roost. Interesting thing, Jeff, I think she's being ridiculous. I was a teacher, and if I would have had a baby on the last day of school before summer break, I would have had the summer to enjoy my baby and return to work. She's just trying to work the system for more pay. Well, she's certainly trying to work the system. I guess she's saying, I'm being screwed over here because if I had had the baby in March, I would have been able to be off for two months and I would have been paid for it. Now, just because I had the baby in June, I'm off for two months anyways, and they're not paying me. Um, Yeah. Jeff, my father-in-law worked for MPS for over 30 years. I think it's a racket. If an employee calls in sick and then they have to call a substitute to come in and that employee says, no, I'm sick, MPS has to pay that person, too, for the sick day and all others until they find someone. Um, Is that fair? She wanted to have a sick leave while she was supposed to work. Well, in this case, she wasn't supposed to work. She wanted to be paid for it. I look at this. Now, I don't know what the courts are going to do. And, and again, a, a lot depends on different language and what the, the overall law says. And I'm not an Illinois lawyer, and I'm not trying to play an Illinois judge on the radio. I do think, though, that in most situations, in order to use sick leave, you have to be sick. That, that's just kind of the, the basic thing. Now, I know that there's some companies, when, when we were owned by Scripps, they, they didn't, they didn't want to argue about whether people were sick or not. So what they did is they gave everybody an extra, they called them personal days, and they gave everybody an extra, like, three or four personal days or, or vacation, you know, vacation days, etc. And so you could use them. You didn't have to say, hey, I'm sick, I don't feel like coming in. You could just say, hey, it's a personal day, and, and nobody would question it. Now, the company I work for now, Good Karma, it's not like that. We get X number of sick days. I think we get three or four, everybody has three or four sick days a year, but they, they expect you to be sick to use them. So at the end of last year, yes, during last year, I used I had a, I had a colonoscopy. So I used one day, sick day, for, for that procedure. Wasn't sick any other time. So that extra three days of sick leave that I had, it doesn't carry over, it's gone. But it was a benefit that you had when you were sick. I think in order to use sick days, you, you have to be sick. And in this particular case, she's not sick coming come September. I mean, you know, her, her maternity leave would have otherwise been over. It was the eight weeks, you know, after she had the baby. It is from her perspective, maybe it's unfortunate timing that she gave birth on June 7th instead of giving birth on March 7th. But regardless, I, I don't think she'd be in, should be entitled to pay. How the courts decide, we'll see. This is Jeff Wagner. You're listening to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. So very glad to have you with us. All right. You can call me the ugly American, but I don't think we in this country have an obligation to just allow people to come into the country for the sole purpose of having babies so those babies can be citizens because they were born in the United States. Follow me on that. President Trump feels the same way, and I think the president is right. Now, here, here's the deal. Let me back into this story. There is, and we've talked about this before, this thing called birthright citizenship. It, it's, it's in the Constitution. Anybody who is born in the United States 
is automatically a citizen of the United States, regardless of the citizenship of the parents. So th- this is, you know, we, we talk about this a lot in the, the whole idea of, of illegal immigration. Stories about like a mom and dad who come into this country illegally, mom gives birth, then the child is a citizen by law because she gave birth within the confines of the physical confines of the United States. Then the whole issue becomes, all right, if the child is a citizen, can you, is it harder? Is it fair to deport mom and dad that are here, you know, illegally? So that's the whole idea of birthright citizenship. President Trump wanted to end it. It is in the Constitution. I don't think you can end it by executive order. All right. Now here's the deal though. There, there is a cottage industry around the world. It's what it's called. It's called birth tourism. Birth tourism. Um, as a matter of fact, American companies take out ads. They take out ads in various other countries, and they will charge up to $80,000 to facilitate the practice of birth tourism. What do they do? Let's say you have, I don't know, a, a couple in China, and uh, mom is seven and a half or eight months pregnant. What you can do is you can pay these companies. The company, mom then gets a visa, etc., travels to the United States. These companies then put you up. They'll, they'll get hotel rooms. They'll get you medical care, whatever. Mom stays in the U.S. until she gives birth, gives birth to the child. The child is then a U.S. citizen. And then, you know, mom and dad or mom and baby, they, they, they go back to wherever they're from. But the kid is a citizen. And, you know, later on, we'll be able to, you know, come to the United States, even though mom has no ties to the U.S., dad has no ties to the U.S., and at least short term, the child has no ties to the U.S. But he's become a citizen simply by virtue of the fact that mom has come in for the purpose of giving birth. Does this happen? Well, well, the answer is yes. I'm looking at some stories about this. The Center for Immigration Studies, which is a group that advocates for stricter immigration laws, they estimated that as of at least about five or six years ago, which are the most recent numbers, they think that there's about 36,000 foreign-born women who gave birth in the U.S. and then left the country. Right, thirty-six thousand is their number. Maybe it's twenty. Maybe it's twenty-five thousand. Maybe it's fifty thousand. We don't know. But but it is thousands of people who come into this country, pregnant women, solely for the purpose of giving birth in the U.S., so the child can be a citizen of the U.S. Right. So here is what the Trump administration is proposing doing. What they're going to do is they want to tighten up. The issue of visas, tighten up issuing visas to women who are coming to the U.S. primarily to give birth. And what they're proposing is they're saying, okay, we're going to treat pregnant women. We're going to treat them like other foreigners coming to the U.S. for medical treatment. And what that means is you can still come into the country, but to get a visa, you're going to have to prove you're coming in for medical treatment and prove that you have the money to pay for it. So in other words, they're going to tighten up the rules to make it more difficult, not impossible, but more difficult for people to get visas to simply come in for the purpose of having babies so those babies can be U.S. citizens. Our number, 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. 
I don't have a problem with this. I mean, to me, the idea that people would come to the U.S. to give birth for the primary idea that, okay, the, the kid is now going to be a citizen, that's, that is trying to, in my opinion, scam the system. And to the extent that we can get a better handle and a better control on it, I don't think that there's anything wrong with that. And again, we're not saying that pregnant women can't come into the U.S., but they're going to tighten up if some pregnant woman wants to come and hang out here on a visa for three or four months. Yeah, they're, they're going to have to make a showing like anybody else would with medical treatment. All right, let's tee this up. 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Bottom line is we're, we're not going to be able to get rid of birthright citizenship. It's in the Constitution. But we can make it a little more difficult for people to come in solely for the purpose of having babies so those babies become citizens. And I don't have a problem with it. 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. We discuss in a moment. If you're on the line, please hold on. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. I got to tell you, I think the president is on to something here. Now, if you had a a pregnant woman who wanted to come into the U.S. from overseas because, let's say, it's it's a problem pregnancy and she needs medical treatment in the U.S., well, you, you could still do that. I mean, you would just like if you were trying to, let's say, you have some. I don't know, some form of cancer, and you're coming into the U.S. to receive medical treatment for that cancer. Well, yeah, you you can get a visa. It's because of your medical condition, and you can stay. Same thing is true if you had, for example, again, that problem pregnancy or crisis pregnancy, and you need some services that you can only get at a hospital in Dallas, Texas. Fine, you you could come in, and you could still get the visa. But if, if it's part of this birth tourism, and you're signing up through some outfit that says, hey, we're going to get you into this country, and we're going to put you up for two months, and you can pay us $85,000 and you can have your baby and then your baby becomes a U.S. citizen and then you're kind of off to the races, this would at least give immigration authorities and the, the and the, some of the, the consuls, it would give them an ability to say, no, we're not going to issue these uh, th- these visas. All right, uh, let's go to a couple of texts. Our number is 855-616-1620. Jeff, this is another reason why I love Trump. Jeff, it's absurd to travel somewhere just to have a tri- child. I think the president has the right idea. Jeff, call me evil, but what would stop a rogue nation from planning pregnant citizens in the U.S. for birth purposes, recalling the new family? Um, exactly. And then sending them back 20 years later. I, it's, I guess it, it is, there's always that sort of, of, you know, possibility, you know, that that's out there. Jeff, just like everything um, else our government puts in place to help people, you always have some so-called law-abiding citizens who are trying to find loopholes to abuse the system. And yeah, that's what I that's what I think it is exactly true that you know they're trying to abuse the system. You know, candidly, one of the things that you also see going on with this is just like you, you have the, the people 
in foreign countries who will make money trying to smuggle people illegally into the country. You have this entire industry, this whole birth tourism industry, which in some cases is, uh, again, leading to the exploitation of the people who are coming into this country. This is just a way of, again, trying to get control on this. Jeff, this birth tourism of which you were speaking is precisely the reason why many of us voted for Donald Trump, not necessarily birth tourism in and of itself, but similar types of things. Yeah, just looking at, at the system, seeing that there's people who abuse the system and then trying to get a handle on it. And like I say, I know the president has been railing about like birthright citizenship for, for years and years. He can't change that. You know, I, he said, I think I can do something about this with an executive order. No, you, you can't. It's in the Constitution. Did our founding fathers necessarily envision this, this whole idea of birthright citizenship and how it might play out, you know, when they drafted the Constitution? I would argue no, but it doesn't matter. It's in the Constitution. And unless you can get a constitutional change, which is probably highly unlikely given how volatile this issue is, you're not going to be able to do anything about that. But you can. I think certainly nibble around the edges of this, which is to say we're just not going to give visas to long-term stays for people who are coming in solely for the purpose of having children, solely so those children can end up being citizens of the United States. This is not, to me, an anti-immigrant sort of situation. It is a common-sense way of cracking down on a major loophole in the law, and I think the president is on the right track in pushing it. This is Jeff Wagner. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. All right. There's, I want to talk about this new rule that the president is proposing for airplanes. But I want to talk about it from a slightly different perspective. One of the biggest scams going is the whole concept of the emotional support animal. Now, let me explain. There is and has always been a requirement under federal law that for um, for support, service animals, service animals get to be on, on airplanes. What is a service animal? Number one, it is a dog. It's limited to dogs. And number two, it is a dog that has been specifically trained to help somebody with a disability deal with issues. The most common example would perhaps be seeing eye dogs. You know, it's not just, you know, you don't pick up just a, a pet and say, okay, this is this is a service animal. No, the dog has to be trained. Specifically, the dog is certified. Now, there's other types of disabilities. There's service animals that do other things, including um, uh, the, the psychiatric help for people. Say you got somebody's got PTSD or something. But but these are they're dogs, and they are trained specifically. Typically, months of training. And they uh, they receive a certification. So that's service animals. And I don't think anybody would argue that people shouldn't be entitled to travel on airplanes, for example, with service animals. Well, what's happened over the last several years is this cottage industry has developed these things that they call emotional support animals. And the way this works is you say, gee, I'm nervous to fly. And so to calm me down... I want to take my pet with me, and maybe it'll be a dog, 
Maybe it'll be a cat. Maybe it'll be a reptile. Maybe it'll be a goose. Maybe it'll be a pot-bellied pig, etc. And under the theory of emotional support animals, the argument is the airlines have to let you fly free with that animal. And they, they estimate in 2017, there were almost three quarters of a million, 751,000, quote unquote, emotional support animals of all different stripes that, that paraded onto airplanes, not the service dogs, but the emotional support animals. So you might find yourself, I don't know, sitting next to the lady that's got the three snakes because it, it calms her down. Well, the FAA is now coming out with these new rules, which would essentially do away with, and, and one other thought on this, the service and the, the emotional support animals, well, there's this been whole cottage industry that's developed. There are doctor feel goods on the internet where if you pay 50 bucks or 75 bucks or whatever, you can get a certification from them saying that, gee, you know, you have some condition, some anxiety situation, and you need to have your pet with you, your emotional support animal with you so that you can fly. So what I think has happened is it's developed into this huge scam where you have people who want to take their pets on airplanes and they want to get them to fly for free. That's what I think has been going on. But it's been creating these huge issues because you've had passengers who have been attacked by, you know, some of these quote-unquote service animals that don't have any sort of special training at all. And you have people, oh, my gosh, there's there's a, you've got your emotional support duck that's on the plane, and the duck gets loose, and it's running up and down, and it's crapping all over the aisles, etc. All right, the rules that are being proposed now would essentially do away with the whole idea of an emotional support animal. Service dogs, specifically trained, would still be allowed, but airlines would be allowed to treat other animals the same way they would treat, you know, your, your pet. For example, I mean, I okay, my dog, does, does my dog relax me and give me comfort? Absolutely. All right, but if I'm going to fly on an airplane with my dog, I'm not going to try to get the dog, I'm not going to pretend that the dog is an emotional support animal, even though the dog does give me, Sasha gives me all sorts of emotional support, and i got to play by the rules. Maybe I have to pay a little bit extra to have her on. She's got to fit, like on my lap, she's got to fit an area under the, the seat. But I think that's all good. This has been really, really abused. And I have no sympathy for people who are trying to, in my opinion, game the system to get their, not service dogs, but to get their their pets onto these different planes. So this rule is, in my opinion, a long, long time in coming. It would essentially say, all right, airlines can set their own policies for pets. And simply because you've got this letter from a doctor feel good doesn't mean they have to allow you to bring your snake on board. Right? They can set their own rules for pets, and you as a traveler have to follow them. So your pot-bellied pig would be treated the same way as my little Pomeranian, and the airline had, would have every right to say, no, we're not going to allow pot-bellied pigs or geese or snakes on the airplane in the passenger um, in the passenger setting. I think that's that's good. That's not the aspect of this that I, I want to talk about. You know, when when Steve Scafidi on the morning was discussing this, he was he was saying, well, that he agrees with the rule as well. So we have a common ground there. But he was talking about how he did not believe that you should be able 
to take pets on airplanes at all. And, and I, I don't think that's an unfair representation of the opinion, of, of his opinion. His thought was, well, you know, you might have people that have allergies. We don't serve peanuts nowadays on airlines because somebody might be exposed to the peanuts and get sick. So why should we allow people to take pets on the airplanes, even if the pet fits under the seat, even if the, the pet fits in your lap, even if you buy an extra seat for the pet, his position was pets do not belong on airplanes at all. Now, understand, I'm not talking about whether airlines should be required to allow a, a snake to fly for free because somebody calls it an emotional support animal. That I, I think that answer is pretty clear. But I guess the underlying thing is if you want to fly with your pet, and it meets the rules. It, it, it's a small enough pet that you can put in a container and it's under your seat or it's on your lap or whatever the airline's rules are. Or you have to buy a second seat for it. Whatever the rules are, should airlines still be allowed to allow you to fly with pets? Our number, 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I will tell you, I haven't, my dog is four and a half. I have not taken her on an airplane as of yet, but... If we ever get to a point where we own property, say, in Florida or something like this, and we're going back and forth, I, I it's not practical for me to drive back and forth as much as we'd be coming back and forth between Florida and Milwaukee. And undoubtedly, I mean, I, I, I'd be... I'm not leaving my dog unattended. My dog would probably be coming with me. Should I have the right to do that? Or should we ban people from bringing animals of all sorts, including little dogs or cats or whatever, onto planes if the passengers are willing to pay for it. Our number, 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Let's start with Jason in Pewaukee. Hi, Jason. Hi, Jeff. Uh, as always, love the show. Thanks. Uh, I just want to give you from a healthcare point of view, um, I can tell you personally how many letters I've written unnecessarily for people to take their animals on the plane because it's easier for us in a world of press gainy ratings to just make the patient happy and let someone else deal with it. Right. So it's not just the doctor feel goods on the internet. It's it's all of us. Oh so it's you're saying So you're saying if you got a patient that comes and says, Well I'm really anxious about flying and I want to take I want to take my, my bird fluffy with me because it's going to calm me down. You're just saying it's easier for the, the medical provider just to say, okay, they've got a stress issue, fine, boom, and give them that note that they can go to the airlines with. Yes, sir, because then they'll rate you happily and you get good ratings to your employer. Right, and yeah, as opposed to, right, otherwise they're saying, this this person won't sign off on letting me take fluffy on the airplane. And how awful, awful they are. Thanks for your perspective. That, that's interesting. Yeah, it's see, that's why th- this whole thing has become a scam. And I, I think you have to separate it. At least I feel strongly you have to separate it. I don't think that we're at a point where you need to ban pets from airplanes. I, I just I just don't. I, I think that you have every right to set rules. And again, it's kind of this balancing thing, you know, and, and the airlines can set their own rules. If the rule is the dog has to be small enough to or the cat has to be small enough to fit, you know, in a container under your seat or whatever, I, I think they have the right to do it. Airlines have a right to say, all right, if a dog is over a certain size, it can't be in the passenger compartment. It has to fly in the cargo area, etc. They have the right to set the rules. They have the right to say, okay, we don't want to let your pet fly for free. If you want to have your pet on the airplane, you're going to have to buy an extra seat or whatever. They have the right to set those rules. 
I don't think they should be obligated to, again, take all these animals for free if they're not a service animal. But the underlying question of if, if you want to get on an airplane with your dog or your, your, your pet, let's say you've, let's say you're, you know, you've got that place in Arizona and you're going to be out there for three or four months. All right. I mean, should you have to drive? Or should you be able to take the dog or the cat along, as long as you're following the airline's rules, should you be able to take the dog along there? And if the airline wants to say, we're not going to allow snakes and we're not going to allow pigs and whatever, I I have no problem with that either because, to me, there's a difference between pets and wild animals, no matter how domesticated they may be. 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Should we ban people from being able to take pets on airplanes? Do we need to go that far? And would this affect you and your ability to fly to different places if they did that? Isn't it possible that you can travel you know, with appropriate measures with a pet on an airplane. We discuss in just a moment. If you're on the line, please hold on. If you want to join us, 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. So very glad to have you with us. Here's a text. Jeff, what about the people on the flight who are allergic to the pets seated nearby? What about a person who's afraid of pets? Well, here would be my answer to that. If, if there is a pet that is legitimately on the, the plane and he's traveling, the pet is traveling according to the rules of the airline, fits under the seat or the person has bought, purchased a, a seat, whatever the rules are and they're following it and you have somebody who's allergic to the pet seated nearby, well, my answer would be that then, then you move the person who's got the allergy or you move the person who's got the pet. You know, that, that shouldn't be that big a deal. What about a person who is afraid of pets? Well, Wagner's rule of life number one life life is tough get a helmet because my guess is as as you're walking through life you're going to see people walking their dogs or things like that so um there's only so much you can do but yeah I, I think you know in that particular situation if you are allergic to cats or you're allergic to dogs and it turns out that 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 little travel case under the seat of the person next to you, and you're in the middle seat, and they're in the aisle, and it turns out to be a cat, and you say, hey, this is going to, I'm allergic to cats, I can't even stand to be nearby, that's when the airline tries to accommodate people, and you move one or you move the other. But that's that's going to be the extreme situation, and I, I think that you deal with that. I don't think you have to say, no, we're going to completely and totally ban all sorts of pets. Let's talk to Linda in McGuanago. Hi, Linda, you're on WTMJ. Hi, how are you? Real well, thank you. What do you think? So I know a lot of people that have exotic animals, anything from kangaroos, monkeys, you know, that that sort of thing. And a lot of these people think that they're their children and they want to travel with them. So they do go online and get that certificate right. and honestly believe that they are able to go anywhere with these animals. Right. And they're not. And what happens when they do is they'll get to an airport and say, I'm going to, you know, here traveling with here. I have my certificate. They'll confiscate the animal. And worst case scenario, if that animal would scratch or bite somebody, right. they would get euthanized because to, to, be, to check for rabies because that's the only way you can. And yeah. the only rabies that are that are uh, that right. are known to work are for cats and dogs. Right. And and, and let, let's be OK. You, and and with, with all due respect to people who have and love exotic animals, there, there there's a difference between a kangaroo or a pot-bellied pig or a reptile and a cat or a dog. They're just not domesticated 
pets. And you're exactly right. right. You know, and, and, and I understand people don't want to hear that, but that's just the truth. That's why I always emphasize that, you know, the only service dog, the only type of animals that can be service dogs are dogs. And those are, and, and they're specifically trained. Yeah, I just... I, yeah, you know what, though? I do believe that the mini horses are also qualify. Don't think so, but could be wrong. I, I, I won't go to the okay. mat on that one with you, but okay. But uh, thanks for But we, we agree. <laughs> we, I, I think it's uh, my understanding is it, it's only dogs that qualify as service animals. Now, um, and, and again, if, if I'm wrong on that, I'm, I'm wrong on that. But the, the, the bigger point is, I, I think, you know, nobody is arguing that you, you shouldn't be able to have your, your seeing eye dog if somebody has, uh, you can't, if somebody is blind. Yeah, you should be able to travel with your seeing eye dog. And I don't have a problem with people traveling on planes with their pets as long as they, they follow the rules. And now maybe this is a personal thing because I'm sure there will be a time when I want to travel on a plane with my pet and I'm, I'm going to follow the rules on that and in my situation i got a four and a half pound dog so it's not like she's not going to be able to fit under the seat but i i just i think it's going too far to say all right we're not going to allow anybody to fly with any pets in the cargo area let's talk to susan and racine hi susan you're on wtmj hello hi uh, I was on a flight last spring from New Orleans to Chicago, and there was a dog, and there was a woman who is allergic to dogs. She said she flies frequently. She always checks with the airline first, are there any dogs? Um, there were not when she made her reservation. There were not when she called that morning. There were not when she checked in. But when she got on the plane, there was a dog. They did move her, but by the end of the flight, her eyes were swollen shut and I'm a nurse, so I administered first aid and helped her off the plane. Mm-hmm. It sounds to me like that's a beef that she has with the airlines. I mean, I, I think every she sounds to me like she did all the right things, and you know, and then the, the airline, if they knew they had some passenger that had that sort of sensibility, I, I think you know, because they, they, it sounds to me like in your story, if the lady had known that there was a dog on the flight, she would have booked another flight, right? Correct. Yeah. Right. And so that. But I, I don't think the the rights of the people with the dog should supersede the woman. Well, but it sounds like that. But don't they both have rights? I mean, the the lady, I, the the air, to me, it's the airline that screwed up because she was trying to well, do the right thing. Would you say that then you shouldn't be able to travel with pets at all? Right. Okay. Well, th- I'm I'm not with you. I I think, I I I think. I, I mean, look, I I appreciate. To me, this is something that you, you should be able to work out accommodations because, first of all, even if you've got an allergy to, like, say, a dog or something like this, you're, you're still going to be exposed to dogs, and that, that's where you move the person. Or you, you make arrangements one way or the other for somebody to take a different flight. I, I, I think you should be able to work out that accommodation, but merely the the possibility that somebody might be allergic to this. I mean, how, how do you deal with that? What do you have about the person? What do you do with the person who has an allergic to cologne? All right, well, you, you get on a plane and somebody's sitting next to you that's bathed in cologne. What they do is they, they, they try to move you. They try to accommodate you. I, I don't think you need to have this absolutism. And I, I don't know if it's a question of does the pet owner's rights to travel, does that trump the person's rights, no pun intended, to, to you know not have their allergies set off. You, you know, you've got to kind of have that balancing. But I, I don't think we need to go to the point where we say no pets. I do think we need to go to the point where we say, okay, no no emotional support reptiles flying for free. This is Jeff Wagner. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. 
Okay, before we move on, one, one final thought about our conversation about pets on, on airplanes. A number of people are texting me saying, well, why shouldn't they ban dogs because people have allergies or because yeah, they, they ban peanuts on airplanes? And and just so you know, they don't ban peanuts on airplanes. Now, what, what happens is because of peanut allergies, many of the major airlines no longer serve peanuts on airplanes. You know, so they always used to bring out the snacks. But there, there's no airline, to my knowledge, that bans you from bringing on peanuts. So if you want to bring on a peanut butter and jelly sandwich or you want to bring on peanut M&Ms or you want to bring on a, a big old jar of, of peanuts, you, you can do that. What The way the airlines handle this is they will, if there's somebody that has a severe nut allergy on the plane, what, what they, they will typically do is they'll, they'll come on and they'll make an announcement and they'll ask, it's, it most, look, most people aren't jerks. I mean, if, if they, you know, so you've got your, your peanut M&Ms that you've brought onto the plane that you want to eat, um, or your peanut butter jelly sandwich, the flight attendants will typically come on and they'll say, we, we have, somebody who's on this plane who has a severe peanut allergy, and if you have any of these products, we would ask that you not eat them. And and most people just, that that's, that's fine, and they end up not doing that. In other cases, what they'll do, again, is if there's somebody that's got the peanut allergy and there's somebody around them that's going to insist on eating the peanut M&Ms or the peanut butter and jelly sandwich, what they'll do is that they'll try to, to move them. But, but they don't, you, you can, it's not illegal to bring peanuts onto an airplane. Airlines, they won't serve them, but they don't ban them, and they just, they just adjust to this, and as a general rule, I think it works out pretty well. Like I say, most of the flights that you're going to have, you're not going to have somebody that has the peanut allergy on it, so it doesn't it doesn't make any sense to say to passengers, we're not going to let you bring the peanuts on. If you do have that one person that's on the plane, then you just make the announcement and you make sure the seats are separated, or you ask people, don't eat the peanut M&Ms, and unless you're a complete and total jerk, you're not going to eat the M&Ms till you land, period. All right. Let us switch gears. The the trial, the uh, the impeachment trial of President Trump started two days ago. It has been, well, I, I won't say nobody is watching it because that would not be true. But the, the numbers, the, the first day, 11 million people watched it. And, and that's a lot of people. But 13 plus million watched the opening of the House hearings where you actually had had evidence. It is a very, very dry procedure. I, I think that that would be fair to say. You don't have, at least at this point, witnesses who are testifying. What you have is you have uh, lawyers and or representatives who are playing the part of lawyers who are speechifying, and they are making arguments. And the arguments really aren't plowing any sort of new ground. I mean, other there's, there's nothing that's being said over the course of today and yesterday and the day before that, you know, people have not heard and hasn't been, been chewed over and, and hashed over. The um, networks, I said this at the start of the, the show, the, the networks that are, are carrying this, I will tell you this, you've got, you got program directors and who are just, and general managers are pulling out their hair because they're, they're losing a ton of revenue. You know, Days of Our Lives, if you want to watch Days of Our Lives in Milwaukee, they show it at 1.38 a.m. <laughs> now you can DVR it and watch it the next day. You can do it around it, but it's, it, it's not on and our switchboard always gets flooded when that's not on. All the local programming that generates revenue, that, that's been blown off. So you don't have the commercials and any of that revenue. And so all the TV 
TV stations that are network affiliates are, are, are taking a hit. You've got it on cable news as well, the CNNs and the MSNBCs and the Fox News. They're, they're carrying it. But, you you know, you can watch it on you, – you can watch the impeachment coverage on probably eight to nine different channels right now. Off the top of my head, I can think of eight to nine, and there's probably more. Now that the networks have made the decision to get into this and to get into it with both feet, I think that, that they can't back out. I mean, you can't. For example, let's take NBC. You can't blow off, you know, your daily programming, um, during the day programming on NBC affiliates for the first three days carrying the Democrats' arguments about why Donald Trump should be impeached without then also blowing out the, the coverage for the next three days while the Republicans make, make their arguments. I know some of you are absolutely riveted. I know some of you cannot get enough of this. You view it as history in the making. I also know that there is a huge, huge chunk of people out there who simply just don't care and at least don't care to watch it. Their minds are already made up. They're not going to you know, tune in and follow the intricacies and the nuances of this. Maybe they'll check back in when we ultimately get around to the vote, but... My question is this, all right, on a scale of 1 to 10, how fascinated are you, how riveted are you to the coverage? A 10 being, I cannot get enough of it, I sit, I watch all the analysis at night, I can't wait for the proceedings to start because I want to hang on every word from Richard Schiff and whoever follows him afterwards, to zero being, I have absolutely no interest in any of this, I want it to be over. I know how the results are going to be. We got to get past this. All right. Zero to 10. How interested are you in the wall to wall coverage of the impeachment trial of President Trump, which got underway two days ago? Our number 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Zero to 10. Zero being, oh my goodness, please make it stop. 10 being, I cannot get enough of it. I am not sleeping. I cannot wait for the next argument to be heard. We discuss in just a moment. If you're on the line, please hold on. Back to Take Your Calls. Here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. We're back, so glad to have you with us. 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right, the Senate trial in the impeachment case started three days ago. Second full day of arguments. Democrats have 24 hours over the period of three days to make their case as to why President Trump should be removed from office. And it's taken the form of one one argument, one speech after another I think regardless of how you feel about it, and the Republicans can get their chance as well, It's to me it's not riveting television. 11 million people tuned in for the first day. My guess is those numbers are going to start to go down dramatically. And, and even people I know who are really into the impeachment thing one way or the other tell me that they watch 15 minutes of it and then that's it. They, just, there's not enough compelling stuff to, even though they care about the outcome, they, they just can't follow this. Hey, look, I, I was a trial lawyer for years and years and years. And, and 
trials in general, even interesting, even fascinating trials, they're boring. There's a lot of stuff that's just boring. You have moments that are fascinating and riveting, but a lot of the a lot of the procedural stuff, it's just kind of mind-numbingly dull. Dave downtown. Dave, you're on WTMJ. Thanks for taking my phone Hi, call. Dave. Adam Adam Schiff speaking for two and a half hours. That's a lot. Yeah. Just, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I'm just not to be partisan or whatever, but I think everybody's really just heard what they want to hear, one way or another. My big thing is a, a, a student of history is it's just not going to happen. Right. And for people who are Republican or people who are Democratic, and I don't mean this maliciously or trying to. You know, I don't want to. I don't want to insult anybody's IQ, but we're not going to remove a sitting president over um, this. Nope, from, you're right. From the United States, we're just we're just not and over this. For people yep. to keep things, in, it's not going to happen. Yeah, I, I think it's, it's, it's foolhardy. No, well, well th- see that, and and I understand that there's people who hear you say that, Dave. Thanks for the call, and they're 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 now throwing things at the radio. I mean, I understand people are emotionally invested in this. I, I'm kind of I'm with you though. The the results of this whole process have been predetermined. The House was always going to return articles of impeachment, essentially on a party line vote with the majority Democrats. The Senate's not going to convict him. And one of the things that, that I, I think makes this stuff so mind numbingly difficult to follow is, is again, it, we're not plowing new ground. These are these are the same arguments that have been made over and over again, admittedly in a different setting. But it's the same arguments that have been made over and over and over again. And and you're not changing anybody's mind on any of this. And I know from the perspective of the TV networks, yes, it is it historic. Yes. Do you cover it? Yes, you you do. But my point is, I, I think in general, most Americans, they've made up their mind one way or the other, and they're not hanging on the words of, well, now the House manager, Representative Sylvia Garcia, is arguing on Article 1, abuse of power. Okay, that, that, are there people watching her make the arguments? Yes. Are there people being persuaded by this? No. I think the vast majority of people are saying, well, if I can't watch Days of Our Lives, what, what's what's on some of these, these other channels? What time does Premier League soccer start? Roger in Waukesha. Roger, you're on WTMJ. Thanks for taking my call, Jeff. I just have to say I'm, 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 I'm frustrated because this is such a waste of time. I mean, I, I am a constitutionalist. I understand certain things about the Constitution. It is all steeped in the Constitution, and all they're going to do is take a vote which is going to be not going to be 67 people. It's going to be along party lines, and it's going to be over with. Let's get it over with, and let me watch my favorite program. <laughs> right, let's, right let, let, let's, let's kind of move on. Right, There's no drama to this. Now, I understand there, you can have good movies where you know the outcome. Apollo 13, great movie. You knew they got back alive. This, this is not Apollo 13, though. I think, I think most people are just looking at this and saying, oh, for goodness sakes, you know, let's let's get on with this, and then let's go on to the November elections, and we'll see what the American public's verdict is over Donald Trump. Yeah, no, thanks. Exactly. I, I, no, I, and again, I, I think that that's I, I think that's where most people are on this. And I, saying that, I understand that there is a a segment, and I think it's going to be an increasingly small segment who who are going to be riveted by all the stuff that goes on and can't get enough of it, but. I was actually, when I was trying cases, I always operated under the theory that, that less is more. You know, that, that you, unless it was something that really helped you, you didn't necessarily want to put it in just 
get your case done, present the highlights, and move on. The, the idea that you're you're going to go on and drone on and make 24 hours worth of arguments on either side of the case, it, it's just it's nobody can be compelling enough for that period of time. My advice to both sides would have been, why don't you condense this? You know, really, it really hit the highlights. And in the space of a couple hours, you should be able to summarize the case, putting the best foot forward. But, of course, that's not what this is all about. The arguments that are going on now aren't for the senators. Everybody knows the results are going to be there. The people that are making these arguments, they're hoping to find that person, that that unicorn in the American public who is – actually going to maybe change their mind on this issue, who is, is watching it. And I'm, I'm just at the point where I don't know that there's anybody who's still watching this. And I know people who are sort of apolitical, who are kind of interested in the process, and I, I'm thinking I've got two of them in my mind's eye right now, kind of apolitical, kind of interested in the process. They told me after the first 20 minutes they just couldn't t- stand it anymore. They just, they just kind of tuned out because... It was not that interesting. All right, here's some text. Jeff, zero to ten, big fat zero. Let's take care of important matters. Jeff, I feel this is all a show. In 20 years, this will be a high school history book saying Donald Trump was impeached by the House, almost like an asterisk on his presidential record. Well, I think it will be that case. Jeff, I would rather watch the Packers get crushed by the 49ers over and over again before I would watch one minute of this sham of impeachment. Uh, I'm not sure I'm going to go that far. Jeff, I wouldn't be surprised if the network show the Democrats three days and then drop coverage of Trump's defense. I would be very surprised. I think you just you, you're in for a penny, in for a pound. In, in my opinion, you can't start with one and then and then bail on it. I guess we'll see as it goes. Number of other texts, zero, um, uh, point two five. Um, let's see. I listen to the radio all day at work. I hear little bits and pieces of this. Sometimes even that is too much. Well, I mean, the ratings are going to tell, but if it was 11 million for the first day, my guess is dramatically less as proceedings wear on. This is Jeff Wagner. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. The bill is a good idea. It is long overdue. Here's a staggering number. The surveys suggest that about 22% of millennials, and I'm not picking on millennials now, but these are millennials. So, you know, there's generations younger than millennials. Estimate the 22%, one in five, maybe one in four, right in that perspective, that amount, have never heard of the Holocaust, have never heard of the Holocaust. Now, of course, the Holocaust was the 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 the, the you know organized systematic murder of about as many as eleven million people deemed undesirable by Germany's Nazi regime. Most of most of the people who were killed in the Holocaust were, of course, European Jews, but there were Nazi collabor- collaborators. There were people who uh, the Nazis viewed as, I guess, undesirable, who were also targeted a- as as well. But you know, this was the systematic effort at genocide, and it occurred, you know, really not that long ago. We're talking about you know, 1937, 1938 through 1945. It isn't that long ago. This is a stain on, 
I, I think uh, it, it is a stain on world history, but it's something that people need to know about. So given the fact that you have as many as one in four or one in five millennials who've never even heard of the Holocaust, much less younger generations, and given the fact that you have people who have survived the Holocaust. Holocaust, And I've had an opportunity over you know the last couple of years to meet a couple of these people who have these just amazing stories. And a number of, of my friends, a couple years older than me, but a number of my friends who, um, her, her, whose parents or grandparents you know, left Nazi Germany right before the Nazis took over. I know a couple of people who, um, friends of mine whose parents... Well, at least one set of parents, you know, grandparents didn't didn't leave and, and then ended up in the concentration camps. This it, it's just it is a horrible thing. And the idea that people do not know about this, I, I find to be just incredible, which brings me to some legislation that's working its way through the state legislature that, by the way, has bipartisan support. This is not an issue that, in my opinion, you know, breaks down on Republican or Democrat lines or conservatives or liberals. But this new bill that's being introduced, which would require require Holocaust education in middle schools and in high schools throughout the state. So, you know, as part of the social studies curriculum, we would require schools to teach about the Holocaust. Now, typically... I am not a fan of, of big government. I'm one of these guys that believes let's let's let local school boards figure out what curriculums would be. But we do have some state mandated training. Our number, 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. As part of teaching in Wisconsin schools, middle schools and high schools, should we and you can argue about what the best way is to teach this. I candidly, I know some people I, that I, I know what they do. These, I, I know one lady in particular, delightful lady. Um, she was she was in one of the concentration camps when she was seven years old. She goes out to schools and talks about her experiences. And there's not a kid, there's not a kid that leaves one of those presentations that, that has not been changed because the kids I don't think understand what the true horror of this was. But given the fact that you have more and more of our World War II veterans who are passing away, more and more of our Holocaust survivors who are passing away every day, don't don't we need to convey this education and and isn't this a good thing, the idea that we would require this form of education? Our number, 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Given all the things that we teach and all the different approaches we have to stuff, I think requiring a segment on let's talk about World War II and particularly let's talk about the Holocaust so people never forget, I think that is certainly Certainly warranted. 855 616, that's 1620, that's the Acunet Mortgage uh, talk and text line. Um, I think it's just way, way, way overdue. And I think this is one of these situations where I think people could learn a lot about it. All right, let's go to our text line while Gru is lining up the calls. I think it should be mandatory learning. Couldn't agree more. Um, Jeff, I would really like to know what history teachers are actually teaching. Are they not going back more than 50, 40 or 50 years? Well, that, yeah, that's a, that's a very interesting thing. I mean, in this, as we move further and further from, from World War II and America's involvement in the Holocaust, is this even something that gets, gets 
taught. I mean, that's a very, very interesting thing as well. How the heck is this not already required? One would think that this would be an obvious inclusion in any and all history curriculum. Um, yes. There, there's no question about it. You would think that this would be a mandatory thing. And I, 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 I think because of some of the friendships that I've developed over the years, particularly the last few years, maybe I'm a little more sensitive to this. Also, the last you know couple years when we've done our river cruises through various parts of Europe, and I, I will tell you, you know, when you, you go through different parts of Germany and you go to some of the places, I can remember we were in Austria, and I'm standing in this little town, and it's the town, its name is escaping me at the moment, when Hitler annexed Germany in 1938, and the balcony, second floor balcony where Hitler stood, gave the speech that annexed Austria, and the place was apparently, there was like 100,000 people in the square cheering him on, and you sit there and you wonder how how could the world have gotten this way? It just it, it just gave you chills being there in a in, and of course in a in a horrible sort of fashion. How could people not have realized this was going on? Our number eight five five six one six one six twenty. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Let's talk to Mike on the Northwest Side. Mike, you're on WTMJ. Yeah, hi. Good afternoon, Jeff. Yes, sir. Uh, the Holocaust should actually be in every every curriculum now. Uh, it's a big part of history, a tragic part of history. And uh, my other thought now as I'm thinking about this, I wonder if some of this afterthought is going to these uh, attacks on synagogues and everything now. It's, it's just baffling me kind of. Well, I mean, you know, and actually that's, that, that, I mean, thanks to call, Mike. I mean, one of the arguments that I, I think, you know, some people are making is that you, you have seen a rise in anti-Semitic incidents over the course of the last couple years. Matter of fact, you know, one of the numbers I'm looking at says that um, they, they believe there's been a 143% increase in anti-Semitic incidents since 2016. Um, and, and again, you, you can quibble about the, the numbers. Is that high? Is that low? Is that inflated? I, I don't care about that. But I do think that, that part of the thing that you're seeing is perhaps a lack of education. I go back to that. It was Baraboo, right? You got the, the kids that are, you know, taking the, the picture on the steps of the courthouse and there, a number of them are making the, the Heitler sign. If, if those kids had had a, comprehensive segment on World War II in general and, you know, the Holocaust in particular. I got to believe that that any of them that thought it was clever or funny to do that would have rethought their, their position. And I guess I, I think some of it, now some people would say, oh, this all comes out of hatred or whatever, and, and there's an element of that that's true, but a lot of this comes out of just flat out, I think, ignorance. People are historically ignorant. They don't remember things. They've never been taught certain things. They don't understand that if you forget history, it can repeat itself. I would apply that to a number of particular issues as well. For people out there who think, oh, gee, socialism is the way to go. Will we be so much better off if we were communists? Well, okay, it hasn't worked out very well, you know, in the past. But but that's another story. Holocaust education, to me, should be absolutely, you know, mandatory let's talk to david david you're on wtmj good afternoon good afternoon thank you for taking my call yes sir um included in course school curriculum absolutely yes i'm i'm not jewish i don't know that i've got any jewish friends i may or may not but to allow that kind of thing to be forgotten I think that we position ourselves and future generations to not be as sensitive as we should be to other events maybe leading up to that 
And if we don't have that level of sensitivity, we will repeat it. Yeah, and, and, and you know, and I wouldn't limit my comments to the Holocaust. So we were talking about that simply because that's what the legislation is. Oh, yeah. But, I, you know, I would talk about the civil rights movement and things. You know, I think, you know, people, my guess is there's generations of people who are growing up not understanding the civil rights flight and not understanding, you know, what it was like to be a black person, you know, living in Selma, Alabama in the 1940s or the 1950s. And, and you educate people on that. Yeah. And and it, and it just it gives them a complete a pers- different perspective on things. Absolutely, I totally agree. And you know, you know, we focus on the Holocaust probably because of I don't know maybe our European general ancestry, but you know, I think of other things like uh, the Pol Pot uh, genocide. Yeah, sure. Uh, you know, millions of people. It's like yeah, we should be sensitized. Right. It, it, well, exactly. And because and, because then then you learn stuff. And again, I go back to the point I was making a few minutes ago. If if people had a degree of education on this and understood, for example, what the Holocaust was about and, and the horrors of Nazi Germany, you, you wouldn't see a bunch of kids making the Heil Hitler sign on, on the steps of the courthouse and taking a picture of it. You, I, I, I don't think you would. I'd like to think that some of this comes not from hatred, but some of it just comes from flat-out ignorance. Some of it probably comes from hatred, but I'm, I'm going to also say ignorance has a point as well. Gene in Elkhart Lake here on WTMJ. Yes, uh, my son used to work for a publishing uh, a, a publishing company very near where you are. Okay. And this, they were doing the books. And Tim was proofing a bunch of this stuff, and he comes to Vietnam, and Vietnam has got like a paragraph. <laughs> and he said the old books, they dumbed World War II down. They just, they just made basically made a statement that, and I, I use Vietnam because I'm a Vietnam vet, yeah. that they used a half, half an inch at the most, and they said Vietnam War was from such and such. That's all they said. And I mean, I'm not. I'm not because I'm a Vietnam no, vet. No, but it's an important I, part of American history. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, I mean, yep. how can and, you? How can you? How can you talk about American history without talking about you know the the Vietnam War and the effect it had, and not not just on the people who fought it, like yourself, but also on um, you know on, on public policy and all that type of stuff. How you, you you can't teach an American history class without teaching Vietnam? I would argue. Yeah, well, and, and the going back, going back to the Holocaust, that should be part of World War II. And you know, they like I said, what's happening is these publishers are dumbing stuff down, yeah. probably because some of the schools are asking it to be done. Yeah, exactly. And it's all a question of priorities. And look, can I I start off this segment by saying I'm not one of these guys that believes in a one-size-fits-all thing, and I don't like our lords and masters at the State Department of Public Education or the legislature dictating necessarily what curriculum should be. I'm willing to make an exception in this case, though, because if it's true that 22% of millennials have never even heard of the Holocaust, much less the generations after the millennials, what what are we teaching people? D in Watertown. D you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hi, good afternoon. Thanks for taking my call. Yes, ma'am. Um, I am fifty years old and I was telling your screener that I've always known of the Holocaust and uh, believed that it had happened, but it wasn't until years ago when I made a trip to Poland and visited the Auschwitz a concentration uh-huh. camp as well as attending the Schindler's uh, Museum that was just 
shocking to me. Right. And I and, and I know not everybody can take a trip such as that, but after taking that trip, I just can't imagine um, this information not being shared with future generations. I mean, it's such such a thing in world history, and it's so important. And and if you can't take a trip, that's fine, but it should definitely be be taught Excellent. in the schools and and make people aware that this was real. This happened. It was so horrific. And, and and one of your other callers mentioned, you know, you're due to repeat, um, you know, when things right. get lost in history. And I, I just think it's so, so important. So thank you for taking yeah, my call. Well, thank you very much for the – I've never been to Auschwitz, but I have – I. I have been to many, many sites in Germany and in Austria. I also, uh, this, okay, last September when we were on our Rhine River cruise, we started off in Amsterdam and I had an opportunity to, to go through the Anne Frank house, which is if you're ever in Amsterdam, you, you, you absolutely must do that. And you just, you, you kind of get this idea of what, what it must have been like to be a Jew in, in, in Nazi controlled you know, Nazi-controlled territory in the the late 30s and through like 1944 and 1945. It, it's just it, it is an eye-opening sort of experience. And for anybody out there who's a Holocaust denier, well, okay, take take some of these tours. You'll understand what reality is. In any event, this is bipartisan legislation um, introduced by. Uh, State, State Senator Alberta Darling, who is a longtime friend of mine, has been all over this. And this is one where I hope Republicans and Democrats can agree, get this done, get it passed quickly.